Well, I hope by now you're in Ruth chapter 3. Uh, we will be continuing our, our study. I love this book. This is a, a beautiful book because I think in, in everybody's heart, we all love going to weddings. Unless you've just been burned by a terrible experience of some kind, everyone loves going to weddings, seeing young or older uh, people come together for the rest of their life with all of these enormous promises, all these beautiful romantic gestures. It's amazing. I love what just this last week my wife, made a group of people watch our wedding video because she loved the, the memories from that day so much. So do I. I just don't usually make other people watch it. They seem to like it, though. It was, it was good fun. Now, this book is a love story, and we saw in Chapter 1 how this lady named Ruth was a Moabite. A Moabite was an enemy of the Israel nation. She was worshipping the, the demon god, Chemosh. She was out there, a uh, very pretty young lady, and she married a Jewish boy who moved to Moab with his father. Okay, so uh, Malon and Kilion, their father Elimelech, moved there with their mother Naomi, um, moved there in the time of famine in order to stay alive. God didn't bless that, and they actually, all the men in the family died, leaving the women unprotected, unprovided for, without an inheritance in poverty. So Naomi decides to move back to her hometown. This is just a recap for everybody. Uh, moves back to her hometown of Bethlehem, telling Ruth and her other daughter, Orpah, uh, which is spelt incidentally very closely to Oprah, uh, but so I keep on mispronouncing that. I didn't this time. Thought I'd mention it anyway. Uh, leaves Oprah and Ruth back in Moab, but Ruth does not take that. She promises that since I have been your daughter-in-law, I will promise myself to you, if you're going to go back to Bethlehem and die while worshipping the true God that you worship, I'll come back and die with you. I'll be buried with you. Your family is my family. Your nation is now my nation. And in faith, your God is my God. That was Ruth's declaration in chapter 1. And since then, we've seen God owning Ruth as her own, as his own daughter. We've seen that he has been providing for her, that though she's a Moabite outside of the covenant people of God, by coming in and trusting Yahweh, she has been blessed by God. She has been protected, provided for with family, provisions, food, and the like. So it happened by sheer luck, which is, of course, just another word for God's providential control over all things that happen in life. She happened to just stumble upon this, this field owned by a, a, a rich wealthy, good-looking, older guy, but successful leader in the town called Boaz. And she was doing sort of collecting aluminium cans along his industrial plaza. That's sort of the image we get. She was gleaning the very poor person's work of picking up leftover grain to survive on in Boaz's field. And he saw her, knew her reputation, said, woman, I'm going to provide for you. You can not just pick up the leftovers, come into the storehouse, take whatever you want, Take it home, be well fed, provide for your mother because I want to bless you for doing the righteous thing and staying with your mother-in-law. And since then, Ruth had, as we covered last week, Ruth worked in his field for eight long weeks throughout both harvests for the wheat and barley. And there was not, even though we saw back in chapter two, a little bit of a romantic spark between Boaz and Ruth, there's this, this love that he was showing to her, this grace. Now he said, it was just because you're a nice gal. I just want to bless you, my daughter. But we know, guys, there's always some kind of attraction behind that. And there was, but there was no callback. We, we recounted last week how eight long weeks went by and Boaz never made another move. And we realize now the mystery as to why this rich man was single in his 50s. He couldn't ever seal the deal. Well, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, 
wasn't happy with that. She wanted her daughter married to this beautiful, uh, wealthy, handsome young man. And so she uh, sort of contrives a plan. Now, I'm, I'm happy that we're past Naomi's wording from last week. But if you haven't watched it, you should go back. It was a, it's a very awkward, uh, questionable, uh, uh, suggestive thing that Naomi suggests her daughter, Ruth, go and do to get Boaz's attention. Uh, really what she says is after he's finished work for the week, Friday afternoon, he's had some beers, had some food. He's sitting up at the, you know, basically sleeping with the guys at the, at the work site, protecting all of their workload. Uh, while he's there, sneak in while he's asleep and lie down at the foot of his bed. And when he wakes up, tell him that you will do whatever he wants you to do. Yes or no, that's great advice to give young singles. Absolutely not. And yet that's what she says to do because she's desperate to get her daughter-in-law a husband. We saw that <clears throat> uh, the plan is, is now not so much that, that Boaz, as we've, we've covered, this is all just recap. Thank you for bearing with the introduction. Naomi wanted Boaz to fulfill that Old Testament custom of the deliberate marriage or the, the kinsman redeemer where a, a relative of yours could marry into, the, into your family and redeem you from poverty. You would get all the wealth. Your lands would be bought back and owned to you again. You would be able to have children if you're a widow. You would be able to have children and name that child after your deceased husband so that he doesn't pass off the land of the earth without a descendant. It was all very wonderful. Naomi was keen, but now we see in her suggestion from last week, she's basically given up on all that whole family redemption business. She's just saying, Ruth, let's just get you into Boaz's mind and heart. Go and find him. He'll marry you. The Lord will take care of me. Now, in verse 5, Ruth replied, all that you say, this is to Naomi, I will do. So she said, I'm going to go tonight, I'm going to go go find Boaz, see where he lies down, lift up the bottom of his sleeping bag, lay on down, looking pretty, smelling great, and I'm going to offer him my heart. Now, we're going to read now, if last week was Naomi's very questionable advice, this week we see Ruth's proposal. So read with me in Ruth chapter 3, verse 6 and onwards. <clears throat> so she went on down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are my redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness of yours greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So 
this is getting interesting. Now the, the plot is thickening. We get to see the outcome of Naomi's very questionable advice. In fact, we also finished last week by asking the question, when we do questionable, foolish, maybe even sinful things, does that blow up God's providential, eternal, unchangeable plan of redemption? And in fact, it doesn't. We, we see that God uses all things to his glory to fulfill his purposes, which is to save people through Jesus Christ. The very people that will be saved are all pre-chosen. All the means to bring that about are predetermined. And yet we remain responsible for our sin. We do not get to excuse ourselves for our sin or our foolishness. But God still works all things out according to his plan. So let's, get, let's uh, recap here, uh, go back and, and start working slowly through this text. <clears throat> now, verse 6 and 7 said that she went to that floor and she did exactly what her mother-in-law commanded her. Verse 7, when Boaz had eaten and drunk he, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the, end of his, at the end of the heap of grain, right? So imagine the scene. He's on, the, he's on this hill. There's a nice breeze coming through. He's camping with the boys. He's got a fire that's just uh, dwindling out now and, and he's under his rug and he's, he's sitting on literally thousands of dollars worth of profit. He's just become very wealthy through this harvest. Nothing in life could be better. He's just finished off his Shiraz by the fire. He's lying there smiling at the stars. Life could not be better and he just drifts off in this state of felicity. Can life get even better than that? Apparently, because a beautiful, well-dressed young woman appears at his feet. Surely he thinks he's dreaming when this happens. He's in the, in the happiest state of his life, and there is a woman. Let's keep reading. <clears throat> so imagine he's very, very happy, and he might just be open to the suggestion of marrying the most beautiful woman in town. That might just be what he's willing to do. So she came, it says, she came softly, and as we learned last week, this is very suggestive, even sexual language that is meant to uh, sort of make you awkward if you understand the Hebrew behind this. Uh, she went softly and uncovered his feet, which again is just so close to the language of sexual sin in the Old Testament. It's almost as if it's suggesting very uh, evil acts, but in fact, that's not what happens. But it, it's suggestive there. She came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled. Okay, of course he's startled. Someone's uncovered his feet in the cool of the night. It probably gets cold. It gets a bit, bit chilly. In fact, the Hebrew behind here just says that he shivered or he, he quivered. So obviously, it's either because it's cold or maybe he, he stretched and hit something that wasn't a pile of grain, got a bit of a shock, turned over, tried to get comfortable, looks down, <clears throat> and what does it say? <clears throat> turned over, and behold, a woman on a boy's trip. He's out with the guys. A girl, this doesn't get any better. Surely he thinks he's dreaming. Something's just happened. Now, maybe he thought, like, uh, like, like you know, we, we know that he's, he's, the, he's a tradie. He's, a, he's the builder. He's the, the guy that oversees lots of it. Maybe he's just uh, found a, a, an apprentice in the back of his ute before. Maybe he's gone early morning, climbed out of bed, gone, got in his truck, and there's an apprentice sleeping in his ute. Get out of there, Stephen. Go home. Find your own place. Stop doing this again. Control your drinking habits. Maybe he thinks he, he rolls over. He kicks somebody. He thinks, great. Another apprentice, an employee, trying to steal my sheet. He can't even afford his own sleeping bag. Get out of my tent. But he looks, and a beautiful woman with a cloak over her, smelling in perfume, all washed, makeup on. She's, uh, she's looking amazing. Now, what we, need to, what we need to see here among this very salacious and provocative scene 
is the, the romantic uh, uh, climax that this is coming to. The man and the woman, as this chapter complete, uh, often refers to Ruth and Boaz, it, it stops sort of using names so much, except for in very key parts, and it just refers to them as the man and the woman, this, this romantic ideal. Just imagine like you're watching a movie and you just see two silhouettes interacting with each other up on the big screen. It's that sort of scene. Imagine the, the, the music in the background. This is a romantic scene to any Hebrew reader who's, who's reading this. Now, he turns over and says, who are you? That's a pretty good question. Somebody rocks up in your bed in the middle of the night. Good first question. Who are you? I don't know why that matters. Whoever it is, are they just not welcome? My first question would just be, please get out. I don't know why. I wouldn't be asking their identification if they're lying in my bed, but here he is. He's, depending who you are, you, you might be able to stay here. He's a welcoming guy. Who are you? And her, her answer here carries a lot of weight. I want to dig into what she says here because we can just read right over it um, with pace and miss the significance. Look at what she says. Verse, verse 9, he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. All throughout the book of Ruth, it has been referred, referring to her as Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the outsider, Ruth the foreigner. That's the idea that you're getting continually. Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. And now she introduces herself as Ruth, your servant. Your translation might say your maid servant. This is not a derogatory term as if, you know, um, I'm one of your slaves, I, I pull, the, pull the grain out on the, the field. That's not what she's saying. She's saying to, to actually call yourself a maidservant is to consider yourself as part of his extended family because you are not just a slave, you're not just a servant on the outside, but you're, you're one of his family who serves. Right? You're an employee, you're treasured, you're a person within his inner circle. She says, I am your maidservant. <clears throat> now this is... This is, even though, uh, uh, this is showing, yes, that I, I see you're the master, you're the boss, I'm the, the lowly woman who is a servant, and yet I'm one of your family. She's saying, I came as an outsider. I've been known as a foreigner, but I admit, I, I receive what you have been calling me. I receive the promises that you've made to me, that if I come to your field, you'll treat me like a maidservant. I know that in myself, I'm an outsider. I deserve nothing in the land of Israel but you have welcomed me in and said that I can consider myself a member of your family and household. And so, so she lays hold of that promise, not what she's worth, not her own deserving, but what has been promised to her, she takes hold of that and says, Boaz, I am Ruth, your maidservant. She's taking him up on the offer and the promise and the welcome that he has made. And this should be as we go through this, let's take examples out of it. This should be the, the, the culture of a church, shouldn't it? That, that there are people who are, everybody's welcome in this door. If it will be physically safe for them to come in, spiritual state is, is not considered. Come in, sit down, hear the preaching of God's free grace. Yet there are uh, different uh, uh, things that have to happen, of course, to be considered as members of our covenant family. You have to be a Christian. Uh, you need to be baptized and, and you need to go through a, 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 a uh, some sort of, um, uh, time lapse before you even then become a member who can vote and, and all these sorts of things. But in general, the church should be the place where anybody can feel welcome. As outsiders they are, we must make them feel like they can be one of us because every one of us have ourselves been outsiders from God's covenant, separated from his people, cut off from his promises of grace. 
So we don't look down our noses at other people, but work to form a, a tangible culture that welcomes in and loves anybody and everybody. Boaz shows us this. <clears throat> but she goes even further. Read in verse 9. She said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Your version might say, cover me with the corner of your garment. That's what it says. It will say down in the bottom of your Bible. It's a little textual note. That's the, the Hebrew can come out either way into English. Either cover me with the edge of your garment or spread your wings over me. Sort of the same imagery there. But in the Old Testament, that was suggestive of marriage. In fact, this was language taken right out of the Old Testament prophecies where God would say to his bride Israel, I took you and I spread my wings over you. I, I found you naked and abused and I brought you in and spread my cloak over you. In fact, in ancient uh, Near East, this was a, a custom that in order to identify somebody as, as a proposal or somebody you want to make a fiancé or a bride, you would walk up to them and in different times and ceremonies, you would place your cloak over them. And this would picture provision, protection, ownership, love, equality, right? That's, that was the, the picture. Ruth here is not proposing. We need to make this clear. She's not asking Boaz to marry her. She's asking Boaz to ask Ruth to marry her. She's bold. She, she's bold. She's, saying, she's not going to say, will you marry me? That, that's not what was done in, in this time. But she's saying, Boaz, make a step. I'm available. I'll say yes if you ask the question just do it. That's what she's saying. Some guys need that little shove. And as we see, very willing to take her up on this. <clears throat> this is a, a, a very significant what she says, though, next. She says, spread your wings over your servant. Please ask me to marry you. I'll say yes, I promise. For you are a redeemer. Remember, we looked at what Naomi was saying. Eight weeks had passed since Naomi got excited about having a family redeemer. Somebody who would come in, pay all the debt, buy in the whole family, all of their land, give the dead husband a name. Naomi had given up on that. That's gone. We, we don't have a redeemer anymore. It's not happening. The other dude in town, he's not going to do it. Boaz doesn't seem keen. But what I can do at least is send Ruth in and she'll get a husband out of this deal. She gave Ruth a script. In fact, we saw in verse 6, it says that she was commanded with the script that she was meant to go with. It said in that script from Naomi, nothing about a redeemer, only about a husband. Ruth was meant to go in, offer herself as a wife. Boaz would say yes. He would ask her to marry him. That would be the end of it. But Ruth goes off script, and it's risky. She's showing here this boldness that she has continually had ever since we met her in chapter 1. Back in chapter 1, we saw that she was commanded by Naomi, stay here, be blessed by the Lord by finding a husband, having children, doing your due, don't come back and die. What a waste of life. And Ruth said twice, no, I will not do it. I will stay. Naomi pressured her again, go away. I have nothing for you. Ruth said, I promise to go where you go. Your people, my people, your God, my God. She's shown obedience, yes, and submission when she needs to. But when she thinks that it can be for the good of her family, she's willing to be bold and, and even independent and disobedient. We also saw this in chapter 2. She was willing to go up to the foreman over Boaz's field and ask, 
boldly, can I please not just glean, I'll stand here and wait until you give me authority. May I please pick out from the sheaves. May I please glean in a very privileged spot. Right now, was this for her own glory, her own self-aggrandizement? It was not. It was for the good of the hungry, poor, old, sad, depressed, bitter widow at home, Naomi. She was willing to take that bold step, not for herself, but for the good of her family. And, and then even in chapter 2, she, Boaz made all these big offers. Don't just do that. Go into the storeroom. My young man will get you water. It's all yours. And she took him up on that. She kept on taking everything that was offered from Boaz. And so what we've seen is there's this constant risk that she's taking. What is the motivation for this constant risk and boldness that we see in Ruth? It is for the sake of the well-being of her family. In Jewish literature and history and writings, they point to Ruth, this Moabite girl, as a picture of an ideal Jewish girl, which is a little bit ironic. But they also point to her and refer to her as a Proverbs 31 woman. If you can just swing with me to Proverbs 31, I'm only going to read two verses out of there, but it would be good to see it yourself and keep a little tag or a, a thumb in there as well because we'll go back there in a few verses. But in Proverbs 31, we see the, the, the Solomon and, and others. <clears throat> in 31, we see the words of King Lemuel. And he writes about the ideal woman of God, this, this woman who fears the Lord. Nothing glorious about her other than a godly fear and righteousness. And that, verse 10 says, is excellent, far more precious than jewels. But look with me to uh, verse 12 and verse 26. Verse 12 says, speaking of her husband, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. And verse 26 says, she, uh, sorry, verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. This is a, a picture of Godliness in a woman. It has to include whatever we define as, as somebody who's godly, Christian, spirit-filled, walking in the scriptures. What, what does a, a woman and a wife look like? Part of that will always be a love and a, a blessedness towards her husband and a looking well to the needs and the good and the health of her household. This is a God, this is something that God smiles on, that he loves. She has uh, even to the point where, just like in Proverbs 31, she takes risks in order to procure blessing for her family. And so we see even now she goes off script because she is not willing to just gain Boaz as a husband, who then she can make donations and support her poor mother. She wants more than that. She wants to redeem the name of Naomi's dead husband. She wants to redeem the land that belongs rightfully to Naomi. And so even though she's hanging in the balance here, Boaz may not be willing to take on a whole family, right? To take on a bit of mother-in-law. That's not a great plus one at the wedding night and ongoing. You, you want to just take a young, single, beautiful gal, and, and the plus one is an old, bitter woman. That might not be motivated. I mean, it's been eight weeks. He didn't make a move. Maybe he'll reject this. But she's willing to take nothing over everything without the good of her family. This is God. I want, I want to just take a moment here and, and show that or, or, or reflect on the fact that, that, that what our culture, and, and of course it's not 
only our culture. This is a, a human problem all throughout the ages, but it's been definitely uh, manifested in our culture that, that women today are discouraged at every point from being a woman who fears the Lord. Maybe, maybe the culture doesn't have as its goal, we want women to hate the Lord and to fail in life. But the ideals that are put forward, the values that are put forward or the values that are shut down are just the very things that God hates. When you're young, women are told that, you know, your parents, they're old, they're irrelevant, they're not good for you. Ignore Proverbs 31, which says that you should be uh, treasuring and looking well to your family, both the family you belong to and the family that you produce. Right? When you're young, you're just told you should be independent, do what you want. Your dad's old and irrelevant. That's why he has dressing standards for you and dating standards for you. You need to get out of it. By the time you're married, if you're married, you're encouraged not to marry, uh, if, if, if you can at all uh, 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 avoid that, because he's going to be oppressing you. Your husband will be holding you back. Your husband does not have the best for you. Men are your enemy. Uh, marriage itself is a, is a patriarchal, misogynistic uh, construct. We can just do without that women. You need your freedom. Don't let your husband wear the pants or limit your freedom in any way. When you're pregnant, be sure that you keep as an open option for yourself the murder of that baby if it will in any way limit your employment, your career, your enjoyment, or your freedom. Don't let children, this little clump of cells inside of you, suck the life from you and destroy your value. Stay independent. That's what women are told. Women are told that when you are a mother and you do have children, don't let motherhood take up any more time than, than, than a favorite hobby would. It's just, it's a part of you. Don't let it identify you. Don't let it take your time, suck your energy out of you, or stop your career. Again, your independence, your glory, your value must be preeminent. Don't think well to, the, to those in your household. You are much more important than the things, and the much more important things are outside these four walls of your house. But Ruth shows us another way. Ruth, Ruth, the book of Ruth shows us that God smiles upon the walking in the design of his people. He has designed both man and woman from the very beginning to flourish in relationship called marriage. That women have been designed especially to have children. That's not a guy's job. That is a woman's job. It's not incidental or accidental by evolution. It's God's design for the woman to be the mother who rears and treasures her children. That is her glory. And 1 Peter 3 tells us, that is beauty, according to God. Makeup, no makeup. Expensive dress, no expensive dress. None of that compares to the beauty that God smiles on, which is humble heart that looks well to the way of those entrusted to her. That is value. Being faithful to the family. Sacrifices made are never thanked in the way that they should be. Mothers, we know that. But God smiles. God rewards it. And in due time, they come back with a great harvest. That is Ruth's example to us. But I want to say that whatever, but look to verse 10. Whatever, we might look in our culture and say, well, women are like this and women are having the wrong values. Look at all the young women and how, how, many, how much the last and the flesh and all this terrible culture is taking our women away. And before we put any blame on them, I want to say that the blame falls squarely on the men. Verse 10 says, Boaz said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. 
you have made this last kindness greater than the first. Here's what he's saying. He's saying this last kindness he's referring to is offering yourself to me as a wife in order to redeem the family of the dead man and your mother-in-law, Naomi. He sees that. He says this last kindness as a sacrifice for your family and an offering to me of a beautiful wife, this is more blessed than the first thing you did, which was promise yourself to Naomi to come and die. He's saying, you made a sacrifice to come with Naomi, even if it means your death, but now you're sacrificing everything to look after your family and to bless me. And he says next, you could have gone after the young guys. There are other much more eligible bachelors in town. Read what he says. <clears throat> For you have not gone after young men. As we've said over and over, Boaz is probably in his 50s. Ruth, no later than a, than a mid to late 20s. She's going after him. No, not a strange thing back in that time. But uh, he's saying you could have gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Here's what he's saying. You could have gone after love or wealth. If you were in love with the man, you would have married him even though he's poor. If you wanted wealth, you would have just gone after the young, eligible uh, men there, and they could have taken you. But what you've done is think well to those in your household. What you've done is faithfulness. You are a woman of character. He blesses her for that, and he says next, and now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. This is a good thing. We are glad to read this. But here's why. He says, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. A worthy woman. He's saying your reputation is of worth. Where else, who else in this story have we read that the author calls somebody a worthy person? It was Boaz, back in chapter 2, verse 1. It said that he was a man of worth. Or it can come out as a man of valor or a woman of valor. As an excellent woman, it can come out. So he's saying, my reputation, it has been met by you. This, this can work. I will gladly give myself to you, do all that you've asked, because you are on a much lower rung socially. But by reputation, we are equals. Back in Proverbs 31, verse 10, it opens up saying, an excellent wife who can find. And the literal Hebrew says, a wife of worth who can find. It's the very same language that we've been reading in Ruth. He's saying to her, everyone knows you're a Proverbs 31. Yeah, Proverbs 31 hadn't been written yet, we know. But he's saying to her, you're the ideal woman. You've shown by your character and reputation that you far outweigh the other women and all other things that I might have been going after. You came to me despite Young, uh, despite the other young fellas, despite their looks and riches, whatever. Well, well also we see that Boaz is, is honouring in her not physical beauty, not the fact that she's come to him late at night and he's taken advantage of her, none of those things, but her character. Now, let's come back to what we said before, where we see a disparity between the Bible's picture for godly women and what we see often in our, our churches and our world today where, where women are, and before you throw any blame onto them, it comes down to the values of the men. It is true, historically, theologically, biblically, that men set the culture. 
Men, I'm, no, this is not misogynistic, but, but those who, who, who control the wealth is mostly the men because of how family lines work all over the world, the way inheritance are passed on because of the way that, that they don't need to take a break from the workforce, for example, for pregnancy, and, and that's not a weakness, it's just a difference. Culture follows the values of men. Why is it that young women are pressured and encouraged and, and pushed towards such, such loose licentious sexuality. It's because our young men value that. It's because the men in our culture give attention to the women who dress that way. It's because the browser history of men in our churches even are filled with pornographic content that forge their mind into the value of women dressed like that, acting like that. Isn't it true that, that the good, innocent, beautiful young women in our churches are called prudes, are brushed to the side, are irrelevant, don't get the attention of the young bachelors. Why? Because our men need to refocus their values, to be looking for Proverbs 31. Don't, don't, don't start shoving Proverbs 31 to women, saying, follow that. Man, you'd be more godly if you were like this, unless the young and old men in our churches are willing to, and taking practical steps to Honor that kind of culture. Honor that kind of character. Publicly, personally, privately, that kind of value from men. That those women being protected, provided for, and loved, and honored by men will form a different culture that, that reeks of heaven rather than the, the graves of hell. It's Boaz who gives us this example. Young man, he did not compliment her on her shape, her dress, her jewelry, her smell. He looks at her and honors. Right, we know that, that what we praise just comes naturally out of the heart. He didn't have a script written. He just flows out here, a, 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 a praise of what is truly on his heart, which is a worthy woman of character. What we do in private, in the middle of the night, with another woman beautifully dressed in front of us, is the proof of our heart. Not what we say in front of other people, not what our, our reputation says even. But this is a time of testing, and it proves his heart that he has all along been guarding his heart according to the word of God, that he's been valuing godliness, and here when it presents itself in front of him, he honors it. Now, we'll pick up next week on, on where the story goes from here, but, but look at verse 12. <clears throat> verse 12 says, now it is true, I am a redeemer. That's good. He's confirming, yes, you got the family history right. We're related. I can redeem you. Every good love story has an obstacle. Every good love story makes the man jump through a few hoops to get this golden, beautiful, wonderful woman of character. And it, it happens here. He says, but, yet, that's, that's the text message you don't want to get. That, that, that's that's, the, that's the, the conversation you don't want to hear. Hey, had great fun. You're a wonderful woman, but we need to talk. What's coming? What's, gonna, what's he going to say? I know what's going to happen. He, he's going to let me down. Easy, but he's going to let me down. He says, there is a redeemer who is closer than I. And what he's meaning here is, I can marry you and redeem you. I fall into that category. But the law says that the responsibility and the riches of your family are actually promised to the closest relative. And I'm not the closest. Now, it's true, Boaz could have taken Ruth right now, run down to the, to the gate and married her and done, rushed the paperwork, shotgun wedding, got her, and then found the closest redeemer and said, she's mine, I got her, sucked in, the land is mine, it's all for me. I broke the law, but I got the gal. 
Love, we are told. Love breaks laws. In fact, I've even, uh, we, I'm sure you've heard of, of preachers or Christianity that says, you know, the, the glory of God's love is that he does, a, does away with the law. He breaks it in order to pursue you. Now, we're going to look in a bit. That is not love. God has told us that love walks according to the law, and to fulfill the law is to walk in love. And Boaz here, he loves this gal. He's affectionate towards this gal. He feels the romance, but he wants to honor God. And so he honors the other man and he honors the law by saying, stay tonight, stay here, stay safe. I'm going to send you home walking on those dangerous roads. Stay here, be covered, stay secret. Before light, I'll send you home so no one knows you're here. That'd be dodgy. But I will, take, I will sort it all out tomorrow. Here's what he says. If he will redeem you, good, verse 13. If he will redeem you, then let him do it. I guess I will submit myself to the providence of God. But if he will not, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, here's his promise. As Yahweh is in heaven, I will redeem you. What good news that would have been to Ruth's ears. To hear him say, I will redeem you. Now, the, all of the waiting is over. All of the, the hope has been fulfilled. All of the suffering has been worth it. All that has happened in the past has been leading to this, and she is joyful. You could just imagine the sigh of relief as she would fall backwards in rest on that pile of grain and praise the Lord. He just said, I will redeem you. Of course, there's all this other guy we need to sort out, and that's next week. But at least, whatever happens, she's coming out of this situation with a protected, provided for mother-in-law and a future for herself and her family. She has a redeemer. I want, to, I want to point to the Old Testament and show you that the word redeemer, as we've just been singing in our song, the word redeemer before Boaz, it was God's title. He is the redeemer of his people. Back in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, he says uh, that, that he is the redeemer of his people. That, that while they're in slavery in Egypt, he promises, I have heard you, I will take you, I will redeem you to myself. I will take you out of the slavery, the poverty, the, the, the sadness and depression you're in and bring you to me where you belong. In fact, it uses redeem in a verb form as well of God. That's what he's continually doing, Isaiah 41, 14. God is a redeemer, it tells us, just like in the very same word as Ruth has been using, this kinsman redeemer. Psalm 19, verse 14 and we sing this song. It says, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Psalm 103, verse 4, it says, Yahweh is he who redeems your life from the pit. That's Ruth. She's in a pit. Yahweh redeems us in our life from the pit and crowns us with steadfast love. Another theme that's been coming up in Ruth has said steadfast love that Ruth has been showing. He says in Exodus 6, I am the Lord, I will redeem you. That's, that's what Boaz said. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, it says. Now, when God speaks in the Old Testament of an outstretched arm in redemption, he's speaking to the cost. He's saying, oh, I won't just utter a word. I can't do that. There's legal things that have to be done. My justice demands certain things. My law requires certain things. I will redeem you but I will have to outstretch my arm, exert effort. Now we know anything is possible for God and yet redemption is costly. I will redeem you by an outstretched arm in my love. 
What we see in, in Boaz, in all of this, is that Boaz's redemption of Ruth will not come freely. And God's redemption of us, not just from the slavery of Egypt, but from the slavery of sin, did not come freely. At the, as as uh, the, the God has been the ultimate redeemer, decisively he has done it in Jesus for our sakes. Ruth and Naomi, their, their whole hearts were turned from deject, dejection, rejection, poverty, to hope when they heard this phrase, I will redeem you. Friends, God has spoken over every sinner on the earth who, who will put their faith in Jesus as a sacrifice for their sin. God says to you, I will redeem you. Just as in the story of Boaz, we can see that the law needs to be met. God, whose, whose law condemns you, promises that he may be your redeemer. You're in debt to his holiness, unable to save yourself. But Jesus has been sent as Boaz, not to come and break the law, do away with it, but to fulfill it, walk according to it, so that God can be just, fair, holy, righteous, and yet the one who gives righteousness to those who don't deserve it. Jesus is the solution of all of this. We see in that it is also not at the cost of money and marriage, but at the cost of his very own life. This is Christ's outstretched arm on the cross with which he has redeemed us. He was, he was stretched to his uttermost limit, pinned to the wood of the Roman cross, bleeding and yet praying for us with the promise echoing Boaz and echoing Yahweh from heaven, I will redeem them. That is Christ. With great cost and an outstretched arm, Galatians 3 verse 13 tells us that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That is the redemption. That is the redeemer, Christ. This is the redemption from the curse of the law. But how? By becoming a curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. And so now Yahweh offers to anyone hearing, anyone here, free grace, utter free grace, redemption, that he will spread his wings over you and call uh, you to himself if you will call him your Lord. Just as Ruth, look at it, she had nothing going for her that she could look at herself, know what she deserved, and then claim that Boaz ought to bless her. But she did not consider her, her own standing, her own nature, her own background. She just considered the promise of the Redeemer. You said I can call myself your maidservant, and so I do. You said I could call on you as the Redeemer according to the law, so I do. Empty of my own merit, you made a promise. And friend, wherever you are today, whether you've been one who has been coming to church and wasting the grace of God, spurning his holiness, continuing on in sin while, while putting on a religious front, or whether you are one far away in the spiritual land of Moab, you're not even in the land near Christianity. You feel you are lost and lost for good. To you, the outstretched arm of God can reach in the blood of Jesus. To you, the redemption is offered. Do not consider your own standing. Simply take him up on the promise. If you come to me, you will not be ashamed. All who come to me, Jesus said, I will by no means cast out, but bring and resurrect on that last day. This is Jesus in the book of Ruth, and this is the gospel offer from God to every one of us.
that we, if we are Christians, have taken up and enjoyed this Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that unlike Ruth, we cannot get pretty before we come and find you. We cannot clothe ourselves in such a way that you will be more inclined to receive us. In fact, like Boaz, God, you, you don't look at those things. You don't look at the outward, you don't look at our righteousness, you cast them all aside. And in fact, instead of looking at our own righteousness, you look at Christ's. We thank you, God, that we can come empty of our own merit, empty of our own righteousness, our own worth, and despite that, Lord, you, you accept us as one of your own if we place our faith in Jesus. God, we thank you that, that though this book of Ruth is romantic and beautiful and, and hopeful, we thank you for the truth, the fullness, the reality that it is pointing to, which is the gospel of Jesus. We thank you, God, that we can be received in him, that we can enjoy you forever. And, and the joy that, that Ruth felt that day to know she would have a husband before the sun goes down again, Lord, only pales in comparison to the joy that we can have, hearing from heaven the promise, I will redeem you. God, I thank you for this gospel. I pray that you would give to us hearts, minds, and wills that will be walking in a manner that is worthy of it. Please, God, turn our hearts from sin. Turn our hearts from taking pleasure in the, the useless, worthless beauties of this world. Put our minds to eternity. Put our hearts towards treasuring those things in one another and in each other that your word says is beautiful. God, may you bless us as we do. Would you be ever more gracious to us this week? We will fail. We will sin. But your love is further, deeper, higher, and wider. Please keep us in your way. Give us righteousness to walk in. We thank you, God. Bless your holy name for this gospel. And everybody said, amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.